So let's go right into the uh, uh, fourth foundation. Okay? We've reminded ourselves uh, or reviewed or learned afresh uh, the first three foundations. And again, these are basics of our practice, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of a feeling tone, and mindfulness of um, what I'm calling thoughts and emotions. And we have the, uh, you know, we have the review of the entire f- four foundations on the handout. But let's, let's look at the text now, because m- one of my hopes is that we read a text which is, when we first approach it, can be a little bit dry and somewhat impenetrable. Can be. Uh, and want to hopefully make it come alive, and we'll have to do a little bit of translation work, okay? So let's look at the uh, text. Uh, this is on the uh, text right at the bottom of the, the left-hand side of the first page, where it says, Contemplation of Phenomena. And then you see it's one. The first of these five frameworks, the, uh, which is uh, translated as the five hindrances, this is the first of the five, and we'll, uh, what we'll do now is we will first um, have a, a fairly brief understanding of the kind of practice that this is pointing to, and then we'll engage in the practice. And then a little bit before we pause for lunch, we'll come and we'll do the same, a little more briefly, with the teaching on the six sense bases, uh, because that will prepare us for lunch well. Since I see, I see the experience of taste and smell in your future. <laughs> okay. 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 So, anyone like to read uh, the first paragraph here? Why don't we? Uh, sure. Do you have the microphone? Yeah. The five hindrances, and how monks does a monk dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena? Here, a monk dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five hindrances. And how does a monk dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five hindrances? Here, when there is sensual desire in him, a monk understands there is sensual desire in me, or when there is no sensual desire in him, he understands there is no sensual desire in me. And he also understands how unarisen sensual desire arises and how arisen sensual desire is abandoned and how abandoned sensual desire does not arise again in the future. Okay. And anyone like to read the second paragraph? When there is ill will in him, when there is dullness and drowsiness in him, when there is restlessness and remorse in him, when there is doubt in him, a monk understands. There is doubt in me, or when there is no doubt in him, he understands. There is no doubt in me, and he also understands how the unrisen doubt arises, and how a risen doubt is abandoned, and how abandoned doubt does not arise again in the future. Yeah. Thank you. And someone to read the third paragraph? In this way, he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena internally, or he just a little louder. Closer. In this way, he dwells contemplating. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah. In this way, he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena internally, or he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena externally, or he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena both internally 
and externally, or else he dwells contemplating in phenomena their nature of arising, or he dwells contemplating in phenomena their nature of vanishing, or he dwells contemplating in phenomena their nature of both arising and vanishing, or else mindfulness that their quote, there are phenomena, is simply established in him in the, to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and repeated mindfulness. <coughs> and he dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk dwells, contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five hindrances. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So let's, um, is that all clear? <laughs> okay, let's look at the, let's look at the text. So, um, first of all, we have uh, the term phenomena, remember, is uh, uh, one translation of the term dhamma. And I was uh, translating it as, uh, not so much translating it, but giving the, uh, you know, the meaning as, uh, basically, patterns of experience as seen through a particular framework. That's what's really being referred to when we looked at when the word phenomena is used. So it, we could say patterns of phenomena might be one translation. And it, again, that is shorthand for looking through these five frameworks, for any, through any one of these frameworks. So just that term can be a little bit confusing, but if you just look, if you think of it as patterns of experience or patterns of phenomena, and particularly as disclosed by these five, five frameworks. That, I think, is the meaning. And, and then, so we see, you see, we first start looking at this in terms of this teaching of the five hindrances. And that teaching is one which is particularly pointing out what makes mindfulness difficult. And that's why it's proper that it's brought up right at the beginning of this section. And so, what makes mindfulness difficult? This traditional teaching of the, the so-called hindrances, the term in the Pali is nivarana, and it's, it could also be probably more literally translated as the five difficult energies. Anyone who's been to a retreat has heard a five hindrance talk. Uh, they're very common. We typically do them on the first full day. Uh, and these difficult energies or hindrances are talked about in terms of five different aspects. And we probably could add others, but these are the most basic. And there are issues of translation. And I, I want to uh, um, give a little bit of attention to those because they can sometimes cause misunderstandings. The first hindrance is here translated as uh, desire, or there is sensual desire. I like to think of the first so-called hindrance as a kind of compulsive desire. Desire in itself is not a problem. The problem is when it becomes compulsive and when we think, I will gain happiness by satisfying this desire. That's what really the hindrance is. We can actually be mindful of desire quite easily. You know, I can notice, let me just watch. I feel like seconds on that piece of cake. Let me just study that. <laughs> What's it feel like? Oh. Of course, that, that's when we're being mindful. Um, and I can have that desire, or I can have a desire to have lunch. I'm hungry, I want, I want to have lunch. What's being pointed here is that which blocks mindfulness. And that's where it's more compulsive, where it takes our ability to be mindful away, where we are uh, unable really to see clearly what's happening. We're unable to see clearly, for example, that there's this strong desire. And again, that's what the, that's what the issue is. It's when desire just takes us away. And uh, the second of the hindrances uh, is also I think, important to talk about in terms of it being more compulsive or reactive. And that's where it's translated here as ill will. We sometimes translate it as aversion. This is the, I, I think, the hindrance 
is the compulsive pushing away. The pushing away, the aversion, the rejection. It could be on the level of the body, it could be on the level of the mind. When I don't want something and I'm not aware and I'm just reacting. I don't like what someone said and I just react with words or I just turn around from the person who said, that's enough, I'm out of here. <laughs> that would be a form of, could be a form of reactive aversion. <laughs> right? And so again, I think what to me is central is that there's not mindfulness, there's not awareness, there's a reaction, and here we're pushing away. It has a, has a compulsive quality. This prevents us from actually seeing. And so in the third is another flavor of not being able to see clearly. And this is when there is what uh, in the Victorian translation is called sloth and torpor. <laughs> and let's see here, it is uh, called dullness and drowsiness. It, you get the idea. It's a kind of sleepiness. It's very common in meditation when we feel sleepy or there's a, a lack of energy and so forth. That's what's being pointed to by the third. The fourth is the opposite. It's where there's restlessness, where there's agitation in the mind and body to the point where we can't, we're not really aware and it's taking us over. So all of these are examples of the kind of situation where the mind state or the heart state or the body state uh, takes us over and we're not aware of it. We're lost, we're stuck in it. The fifth is doubt. That can be a kind of self-doubt in the context of meditation. It can be doubt about teachings, doubt about the teacher, could be doubt about spirit rock, you know, uh, whatever it might be. And uh, again, sometimes those doubts can uh, actually be pointing to something that could be valid. But we're particularly interested in where, in where the doubt just takes us away, we're not aware, we're lost in doubt, so to speak. And the, the, uh, traditionally, there are metaphors given for these five hindrances that give a sense of what these are like. The, it, it's said often that if we have the uh, simile of a bowl of water, that the, uh, this compulsive desire is like the water is tinted with dye and we actually can't see clearly, or we see everything through the filter. You know, it's like we see when we, um, when we are only hungry, you know, and I have to eat now, and maybe we're at, maybe, maybe as we get closer to lunchtime, maybe we just, all I want to do is eat. And every perception gets filtered through that wanting, right? Or we, you know, we, we um, can experience this in all sorts of ways. I want this, I want that. And the wanting becomes this filter. We see everything through that. I want, you know, I want approval. You know, I want to connect with this person. And everything, when that wanting is compulsive, goes through that filter. It's dyed in that sense. Uh, it, it, and that's how we experience it. Do you know that? You know, like I, I uh, what would be another example? that someone would give of, of that kind of compulsive wanting, almost like uh, becoming a filter that we look through. That really, you know, here's the, let's use the, the mic if we can, sorry. I was just going to say one word. Yeah. Addiction. Addiction, yeah. That, and uh, in addiction, all I want is to meet that addiction. And everything is seen, will this help me meet my addiction or not, Right. Everything almost becomes means to an end. And we see through that wanting. So addiction, uh, you know, that, that wanting connected with addiction is the extreme example of this kind of wanting. Okay. Aversion is, the traditional image is the water which in that compulsive desire was tinted or dyed. Here the water is brought to a boil. <laughs> The state of the highly aversive reactive mind is like boiling water. One gets overheated. You know? And again, that's, I think it's not so hard to imagine all sorts of examples of that 
we can be, you know, and anger often feels like heat. When anger gets very strong and compulsive, we are taken away by anger, we are uh, heatened, we, uh, and we only are aversive towards that person. You know, or it could be, uh, you know, it could be that the aversion is motivated by fear or anxiety. I don't like, you know, I, I have to speak publicly in two days and I'm really aversive to it and everything is through that filter. Maybe I should call in, it's at work, maybe I should call in sick, right? You know, everything goes through that, the, the strong aversion to this experience, in this case in the future, is there. Or it can be the experience of aversion in the present moment. We know this a lot through unpleasant bodily states, right? That we have this very strong aversion and, you know, um, everything goes, in a sense, goes through that filter. I think we know very well that experience of uh, dullness and drowsiness or sloth and torpor. Uh, the traditional image is that of the pond of water now has algae throughout. It's stagnant water. <laughs> it's a traditional image for this. And again, that's familiar. You know, we know when we're sleepy to the point where we can't be aware in meditation or where there's just a dullness, a drowsiness that affects us. So we can't really be present, we can't see clearly, and we may make unwise decisions at that time. Right? That's familiar, right? Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Um, in, at the end of each one of these paragraphs, yeah. they, they say, uh, for example, with doubt, yeah. how abandoned doubt does not arise again in the future. Yeah. All of, they say all of these things will not arise again in the future. Yeah. How can they say that? Yeah, so the question is, and let's... Uh, Let's, I'll, I'll repeat the question, and we can, if we can, um, we'll ask you to be super mindful and use the mic. <laughs> but the question is, uh, what, what is that end of the passage saying about this not arising future? Let me get to that in a moment. Let me go through these five, and then I'll, then I'll um, go through the text a little bit more. So the, uh, the fourth is uh, restlessness and worry. And that is likened to a pond of water being windswept. Uh, one is being tossed around by the water. Uh, and again, I think we know that it could be restlessness of mind, restlessness of body. You know, we just could be really uh, overly agitated by things. And again, in that situation, we can't be, we can't be present. The fifth is some kind of doubt. It's likened to dark or muddy water. We can't see clearly. There's obscuration. Again, this would typically be doubt about self, doubt about, uh, in this context, it's especially doubt about the, the teachings and so forth, doubt about what one should do, a, a basic kind of uh, confusion about, about what to do. Now, the aim here, and we can see this in the text, is to know with mindfulness when one of these is present. And actually also to know when they're not present. To know when I am free of doubt. So working with this particular model would also help us to actually tune into the positive. You know, actually, I don't have any aversion. I feel a certain degree of peace, which, which is very helpful. So the mindfulness is both about whether one of these qualities is present, and, whether, and then whether it's not present. Then, there's also the aspect of seeing clearly how these arise, and how we, we might work with them in the present moment, and how over time we might work skillfully with them so they don't arise in the same way. And this is what, the, this is, what is being referred to in that part of the passage that you uh, pointed us to. And what's interesting is we want to read this and hear the presence of that model of the four wise efforts, because that's what's being talked about. Do you remember the kayak model? Stay out of trouble, know what to do if you get in trouble, develop good habits, and keep them going. Okay, that's, the, that's the kayak interpretation of the four wise efforts. 
contemporary. Okay. And uh, if we read the text, we'll see it goes like this. You see the first part says, how does a monk dwell contemplating in terms of the five hindrances? The, and I'll translate a monk as a practitioner. You know, I think uh, I, would tr- I would bring this up to a contemporary moment, translate monk as practitioner and say he or she. Okay? So I think you know, when I've had the liberty of making translations for publications, I have done that. <laughs> okay? And so, so first we say there is central desire in me, or when there is no central desire, he understands there is no central. So you see, that's the two types of mindfulness, mindfulness of whether this is present. But then also, if we're practicing with this model, we also know, ah, I don't have compulsive aversion. Oh, I don't have compulsive wanting. And we tune into what that feels like, and it can feel, oh, there's some peace there. You know, or we tune into, I don't have compulsive wanting, I'm reasonably alert, I'm not restless, and I'm happy contented doing what I'm doing, I don't have doubt. Ah. <laughs> you know, and that's actually significant because that means that the conditions for full mindfulness are present. And then we go further. We want to know when, when, it's, when each of those is present, when each of them is not present. And then, we also, then it goes on to say, one also understands how unarisen sensual desire arises. So that's the first wise effort. You know, we that there is um, um, how arisen central desire is abandoned, how abandoned central desire does not arise again in the future. So this is using the grid of the four wise efforts. It's saying here we're particularly talking about the first and the second. The first was uh, stay out of trouble, but actually we're talking about the second. Uh, the second aspect of wise effort is when something that is unskillful or in traditional language unwholesome, let's say when one of the hindrances arises, we know what to do with it. That is, that is uh, what's being pointed to here. So that's the second aspect of wise effort. Let me say a little more and then get... So, and then how abandoned sens- sensual desire does not arise in the future. This is referring to the third and fourth aspect of wise effort. In other words, develop good habits and keep them going. And let's say that we had, uh, you know, if we wanted to translate this into an everyday situation, let's say that I had, I don't know, uh, an addiction to sugar, okay? And, um, and, I w- and I found myself in the situation where I was, um, uh, you know, where that wanting manifested and I was actually acting on it. Let's say I went and I was having sugar and I was, and I was kind of caught away in it. Then I come to my mindfulness and I work with the aspect of wise effort that says, what do I do if I get caught by this wanting? Okay? And I, have, I should have a certain repertoire of tools. You know, in, in the tradition, for each of those, each of these, there was listed a whole set of tools that would be helpful for ways to both work with the difficult energies when they arise and then know what to do so they don't arise so much in the future. And we could think about that in terms of this example. What might we do if we discovered I'm a little bit on a, I'm in the midst of eating a lot of sugar, I want more, and I know that it's not helpful for me, what might I do right in the moment? What? Please. Yeah, maybe uh, if it's just a short response, it's fine to speak up, but yeah. So acknowledge that you want it? Yeah. Yeah, and just say, I'm really wanting this. So be, yeah, acknowledge the feeling inside that you want it. We could acknowledge right. that we want it. And what would we do if we wanted to actually pull out of that state? Then have something that you say to yourself that's going to help you pe- help it pass. Yeah, so I might have something yeah. I say to myself mm-hmm. like, um, this is really important for me not to do this too much. I'm going to, this is last cookie. <laughs> okay. okay, and I might say to myself, what else might I do? What might be other skillful? Yeah. Go to the gym. Go to the gym. So I'd say, 
I'm going to pull right, you know, I have a, one way of responding is that I say, when this arises, I'm going to just get out of the situation and go to the gym, okay? What might be something else? Yeah. Just, this is mental weather and it'll pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, I could acknowledge it's impermanent, but acknowledging impermanent would pass might still keep me eating. <laughs> so what else might I do? We're, see, here, see, here we're looking for, uh, you could see that it's, we're actually looking for both w- ways of understanding how this arose and then knowing what to do to get out of it and then knowing what to do in the future to stop it arising like that. That's, so these are the aspects of skillful effort in relationship to the first of the hindrances, right? Okay, so what else? Uh, go to my breathing. Yeah, I might go to my breathing. What do actually, this is not a hypothetical example for some of us. What, what do you actually do? Have an apple, have a carrot, or maybe you just think, you know, I've been here before, this is not helpful. This is like, a, you could call upon your wisdom. This is not going to go to a good place. Let me just stop this, right? And you call upon your willpower. It could be all sorts of things, right? You might say, you might say, I am having wanting. It is time to meditate. For how many would that work? <laughs> a few. A few. Yeah. Go ahead. You could also eat it and the whole time be saying, I am nourishing myself in the best way I know how today. Yeah. So we might really uh, want to be careful about being too judgmental and really try to taste it and saying, I am in some sense doing the best I can. And that might not be fully complete, <laughs> but it might, it might be skillful. <laughs> so this is going to be, this is going to be individual. But, you, but basically what this is pointing to, it's if you, again, if you look at the text... Um, He says he also understands how unarisen sensual desire arises. In other words, one understands what the conditions were that led to it. Maybe you actually, this is where you might reflect. You might not know in the moment, but you might reflect, I was, you know, what happened? What led to me doing that? Was I feeling a little depressed? Did I have thoughts about something? Did I just have something difficult happen and say, I need a reward? <laughs> Or something, you know, people do all sorts of things like that. So here, it'd actually be inviting us to reflect what were the causes and conditions that led to this, right? And we'd want to actually think about it so that we could be more careful next time I feel a little depressed. That's the whole logic here, right? For when I have certain thoughts, you know. And this could also, that whole logic could apply to how we relate to aversion. You know, if I know that when certain things happen, I get really judgmental towards myself, we'd want to really look out for when those things happen and say, I really need to bring my mindfulness here. Or maybe when those things happen, I would have a secondary strategy. Maybe like, it would be like to uh, go to the apple or something like this. So there are a whole set of tools that we would call upon and we could actually, in the, in the tradition, and those of you who have the Analayo book, there's a whole set let me see where I have this, of the traditional um, antidotes, the ways of working with each of these. You know, so for example, um, for some, it might be one of the traditional ways to work with the, the wanting would be to guard the senses, to not go certain places, right? It would be to not go certain places. If one knows that one gets addicted, like, uh, I don't know, late night on the internet or something, maybe you just set a boundary and you don't go there. You, don't, you set certain boundaries. You don't go, maybe say, after. This is actually something probably that it's increasingly an issue. You know, when I do one-on-one work, it's an issue for a certain percentage of people, and I won't ask for hands here. But sometimes we, we can, that could happen. And so we might guard the senses by saying, I'm not going there. Right? That would be an example. Um, Moderation in food was one of the traditional ways to uh, support this. Also, good friends and suitable conversations. So it points to the role of what leads us to want 
or what leads us to be aversion. Maybe there are certain things in the culture, right? You have certain cultural uh, conditioning, maybe certain, it could be whatever, TV shows, songs, cultural attitudes, and we could know that, you know, when I hang out with these friends, we often badmouth other people, right? It could be something like that. Or we could know that that's a pattern maybe at my work, you know, when we all are just having our, our breaks, we tend to talk negatively about other people because that bond gives us a group bonding. <laughs> Does anyone relate to that? Probably it's common, right? It's common in experience. And we might say that I'm not going to, uh, I want to really refrain from that or I want to actually strengthen other kinds of conversation. The list, actually, on, this, on these traditional lists, good friends and suitable conversation is an antidote to every one of the hindrances. <laughs> it's interesting. But you can imagine what they are. You know, the, uh, we might, if we're having a lot of aversion, we might go to loving kindness. We might find an antidote. If I'm really, you know, again, if I'm being really down on myself, I might go to self-compassion or loving kindness. If I'm really, uh, I might find that which helps shift the energy away from compulsive wanting or compulsive uh, not wanting. Um, again, here one of the traditional reflections is on the consequences of my actions. What's going to happen if I keep this grudge going, right? What's going to happen to the relationships? What's going to happen if I keep feeding that addiction? We reflect on consequences. This is seen. So this all comes into the fourth foundation. Having antidotes, having wise responses to when I get in trouble, reflecting on the consequences. All of this is part of the fourth foundation. So you see how it brings in a lot more than we had. The first three, it's more or less just being present. I'll just mention a few more of these. If you have sloth and torpor, traditionally, don't eat as much. Uh, change your meditation posture to be more upright or stand up if you're in meditation. Um, can open your eyes. If you're sleepy in meditation, you can open your eyes, stand up, do you know, more vigorous walking. Of course, it could be that you need more sleep, and then that's good. But a lot of, lot of sleepiness in meditation is not connected with a need for sleep. It comes from other factors. So you might be, do vigorous exercise. Uh, it's recommended that one stays outdoors. You know, do your meditation outdoors. Um, Jack Hornfield was advised when he was first meditating in Thailand and was having a lot of sleepiness, uh, do your sitting meditation on the edge of a well that goes down 50 feet. (laughs) The sloth and torpor factor, hindrance, uh, diminished rapidly. (laughs) So there are different things like that. For restlessness and worry, it's good to have, uh, this is traditional, to have knowledge of the teachings was said to be helpful for restlessness and worry. Um, to, uh, it said, visit experienced elders <laughs> if you're having a lot of re- restlessness and worry. For doubt, again, uh, one of the traditional things was to develop in faith, to find people who inspire faith, uh, to strengthen your commitment and so forth. So we have, um, you know, to talk to a teacher and so forth. So there are a whole list of all these ways to respond. So you see what's being, being developed here. For each of the five, we want to know that they're happening. We want to also know that they're not happening. We want to have some sense of how they came to be so that we can maybe act on the conditions in the future. That's part of them not arising in the future. Right? And then we want to be skillful when they do arise and know how to shift, shift out of them. That's all part of the fourth foundation. So it's it's quite a lot, really, really. Yeah. So maybe one or two questions, then we'll do the meditation. Please, Madison. Um, and let's use the mic if we can. Thank you. Without getting specific, unless you want me to, because okay. I certainly could, um, I find that the timing is everything, and this stuff arises spontaneously. Yeah. And I would have no idea of how sometimes these things come to arise. It feels like I'm walking down the street and suddenly 
something arises and I have a very strong reaction to it and I'm really good at knowing I'm having this. This is what's going on. I'm having this. I can't get to the second part. Well, I I wouldn't know how to say I'm not having it because when I'm not having it, then it's pleasant and I'm not thinking about, oh, it's pleasant. I'm just... I'm thinking like there's neutral and then there's pleasant neutral. And the only thing that I really notice is the adversive stuff. And and so I don't get to the how and I don't get to the antidotes because I'm like swimming in the episode. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm really stuck with this. Yeah, yeah. So it relates to the other questions that we had from Larry. And your name again was Sharon? Um, that uh, there are a few, a few aspects to it. First, the fact that you know that it's happening is very significant. And that's great. And that, that actually permits the response. Mindfulness, being present, is key because then we at least have some of our attention not lost or caught. And, we can act that, and that mindfulness then can uh, lead to asking the question, what should I do? Okay, so that's significant. Second thing... When you, uh, the awareness of the hindrance not being present is something that really has to be cultivated as a practice. You know, it's, it's like this. And so, so it's not a problem that you're not aware of it. Most of us aren't unless we train in this way. But, but you see, it's interesting. It was also there in some of the other foundations the importance of actually knowing we're in, when we're in a good place. We tend to be such, most of us, such problem solvers, right? We just focus, you know, it's like I was thinking, I was talking with someone a day or two ago, and I was saying, well, you know, there was one situation where I, or, I was a co-organizer of a summer institute for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. This was some time ago. And midway through, we did an evaluation just to see how things were going. And we had about 100 people there, we had about 100 responses, and four or five of them were negative. The organizers spent almost the entire time focusing on those four or five. We did not tune in to how 95% of the people thought it was going uh, swimmingly, as they say, <laughs> or, or very well, right? And so it actually, this, it's actually, uh, I think it's a particularly valuable practice for aversive people and probably for Westerners in general, for people living in Western societies in general, to, um, to actually learn to tune in to when there's an absence of the hindrances. Tune in, oh, are they, and this is something we'll do in a moment, are the hindrances there? Oh, they're not. Okay, let me just feel that. Right? And to tune in to the positive. So that's the second thing. And then in terms of the challenge of... Um, having a hard time applying an antidote or getting out of it. There are sometimes that that's the case. And again, what you can do are a few things. First of all, you can do the same practice when things are less stuck or less caught, you know, less significant examples of the hindrances. You can work with those, as we were saying earlier. And then in terms of the really hard ones or the ones where we're stuck quite a lot, there's a lot that you can do after the fact. Sometimes in the moment, it's just hard to get out of it. But you can reflect afterwards. Maybe six hours later, you can reflect. You know, when I, I there's one uh, very old pattern that, uh, you know, a number of years ago, I did some protracted work on a, on a tendency of me, of mine, to um, be very judgmental towards someone I was working with. And I had a mentor who helped me with this. And initially, I just found myself totally caught in the judgment. And I would judge this person. And uh, some of you have probably heard this story. And then I would withdraw emotionally to, uh, to a very comfortable place of distanced moral superiority. <laughs> and I would just go there. And I wasn't aware that I was in it. And at the moment, I couldn't really get out. And it took some really inquiry and investigation and a lot of energy towards that difficult state and time and quite a lot of reflection after the fact. Okay, what led me to get in there? What was the trigger? 
What was the stimulus? What led that? This, again, I'm talking about our most difficult ones. What was, the, what was the pattern? To have actually some analytical knowledge of, oh, it started with this guy when I thought he didn't listen to me. He just totally, I said something, he just totally went somewhere else. And that triggered me. So we look for the triggers, right? We study the triggers. And that, it might take a while to say, what's the trigger? I don't know. You know? And so our deepest patterns could take months to really study like this. Could take time. We look for the triggers. We might reflect after the fact. What happened? Where did I go? The way I said it just now, that took a few months to get there. You know, at that time. To really get to the place where I said, there's this trigger. I'm reactive. And then I withdraw emotionally to a place of distance moral superiority. Sounds kind of... That took a while to get there. So you have to study it, reflect after the fact, and just really say, how did this arise? Very much like in the text. Understand how did this arise. Now again, we want, I think we want to really study a lot with our less difficult states. If you go to your most difficult states where you're most stuck, that's going to be harder. Study with the less difficult ones a lot. And then do this with the more difficult ones. So... Maybe the last one, then we'll go to meditation. Yeah. Uh, Donald, uh, how would that resolve? So you see the trigger, and I pres- is it enough just to see the trigger and become aware of it? You know, that's a trigger, or it well, was it, resolved in mindfulness. Well, this is a yeah. I mean, most of our stuck places, you know, are actually somewhat complex. Um, In this case, we can isolate the part of the process where I was just trying to see how the trigger occurred where I went. That was a lot to get there, right? Just to get to that place. Of course, it's a relationship, so it's way more complex. I have to bring in interaction, speaking, resolving the situation, talking, etc. So it's more complex. But at this point, we're primarily interested in trying to see what's happening, notice it, and have, uh, have an antidote that helps one get unstuck. That's our focus right now, in meditation or in the flow of daily life. And so for me, I could do, that happened over time, by being aware of the trigger, being aware of what my, was happening internally, and actually it helped a lot to kind of slow down and notice that it didn't, actually notice the feeling tone it didn't feel good to not be listened to. And some of you may know a technique. I have a friend who has a technique where when someone says something that doesn't feel good to her, she says, ouch. Which at first I thought was California cute. But I later realized it was a profound application of the second foundation of mindfulness. (laughs) Do you get it? Because it's actually acknowledging that doesn't feel good. And acknowledging that when something doesn't feel good, we are really likely to get triggered and go somewhere and get stuck there, right? So, so for me, it actually was tremendously helpful in that situation to actually tune into how that didn't feel good. And then I could notice my mind tending to go somewhere. Right? I, I've noticed on long retreats that there's a thought, uh, an image that precedes this. And normally yeah. we don't see it, but boom, there's a little flash. Yeah. And it refers to s- some amygdala thing back, I don't know. Yeah. And if that can be seen, it's enough to see it once or twice. Yeah. For me, when I, uh, when I would actually notice the unpleasant quality, and this is why that second foundation is so crucial, when I was able to notice the unpleasant quality, it gave me enough mindfulness so that the tendency of the mind to go to judgment, I could feel as a tendency rather than as already accomplished. In other words, things get slowed down. And this is what mindfulness can do. And so again, we're talking about really deep patterns here. We can work with the less deep patterns. And that's that's important. Okay, so let's do... um, Interesting, isn't it? So you get it, you have a sense of how to work uh, with the the model of the hindrances here. Let's do it for a while. If you want to stand up for a second... Um, but we'll start the practice now. Mm. 
And just let yourself be in touch, maybe first with your, your body. We've had a lot of talking. If you need to shake out some of the talking, you can do that. Shaking is very, very helpful before meditation. <laughs> might even dance a little bit. Dance and shake. Aren't there some rock and roll songs that, with that name? <laughs> a lot of songs like about shaking, right? Okay. And when you're ready, uh, sit back down. I'll do this partly as a guided meditation, but first we want to just be with the breath and just come back first to being mindful with the breath as best one can. And then the guidance will be initially notice if any of the five hindrances appear and just name them if they're there, some kind of strong desire. It might just be the thought, hmm, I am hungry. I'm really looking forward to my lunch. (laughs) Then you just name it, okay, strong desire, whatever. Or some kind of aversion. Or some sense of sleepiness. Or some restlessness. Or some doubt. So we'll just, again, they may or may not arise, but we will have our radar out for them for the next, oh, 10, 10, 12 minutes or so. So the guidance is if one of those arises, know that they're present, feel what they're like for a little while, and then if you have a sense of what would be a skillful response, then bring that response into action. And sometimes a skillful response would just be to be mindful. Sometimes if we're mindful of a a strong desire or a strong aversion, The mindfulness in itself is an adequate, uh, skillful means or response. But sometimes we might need something else. So first be mindful that they're present if they occur. Stay with them for a while and then ask what's a skillful response, which may be only to continue being mindful.
as we continue to practice, also take some time now to ask, is this hindrance present? Is that strong desire present? You can go down almost like the five of them, almost like a checklist, and see, is it present now? And if it's not present, feel what it's like for it not to be present. What does it feel like to have no strong or compulsive desire present? What does it feel like to have no strong or compulsive aversion? We can tune into maybe more of a sense of peace or contentment and really notice that. Similarly with the sleepiness or the restlessness or the doubt. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.